Well, let's open the scriptures this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you are new to Crossway within the last couple of months, we want to let you know that we rotate in our preaching. And so Pastor Scott Golicky is preaching through the book of Daniel, and I am preaching through the book of Philippians. And this morning is a transition Sunday. All right, so we are moving from Daniel back into Philippians. And as you're turning there, let me just say that over the years I have, I have come to the conviction that people who are spiritually serious sing hymns. Suffering, sorrow, sorrow over sin, brokenness, the weight of eternity will draw us to sing hymns. Now, not only hymns, but an increasing diet of hymns. The reason is simply that when confronted with loss and pain and confusion, relentless pressure, exhaustion, the weight of eternity, when pressed with just how fleeting life really is, the human heart longs for something solid to fix upon. Something by which to gain its bearings. This is why the psalmists cry out, O Lord, to you I call my rock. My rock. The unpredictability and hardships of life foster a hunger for substance. A substance that is not always satisfied with ABC. Now, I'm not down on choruses or spiritual songs. We sing a number here at Crossway, and there are many of them that I really love. There's nothing bad or sub-spiritual about simpler songs or even simple truths which can be profound. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. A, B, C. And yet that is a profound truth. At the same time, though, I could say there's nothing wrong with pasta. But pasta needs meat. When my wife and I were married early on. It had to have been really early because it was probably the first time we ever had spaghetti. And I sit down and I, I look and I, I know, we pray because we pray. Uh, where's, where's the meat? My wife looks at me and goes, it's spaghetti. And I said, yeah, I, I see the spaghetti. It's noodles and there's sauce. Where's, where's the meat? Spaghetti's supposed to have meat. Do you really have to have meat at every meal? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Except breakfast. Bless her heart, I've had very few meals in the last 15 years without meat. Protein. Hymns are the protein of worship. They're the protein. And when we are seeking to be fortified... In worship, we need protein worship. Those songs, watch, those songs that hold the densest theology are the most meaningful because those are the songs that best enable the heart to transcend ourselves and behold God. And the more truth, the more majesty. Our text this morning is dense theology. It's dense. 
And some believe that this passage may have actually been a hymn sung in the early churches before written by the Apostle Paul as part of his letter to the Philippians. In the end, it really doesn't matter whether it was a hymn before or not. Paul, by putting it in the letter to Philippians, makes it the word of God. Its great depths give us solid footing and purpose and endurance as we seek to put the gospel first in all we do. As we seek to make the gospel the driving priority of life. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a famous text because of its contribution to our understanding of the nature of Christ. How could Jesus be 100% God and yet still be 100% human? This passage even gets its own nickname. It's called the kenosis. And the word kenosis means emptying. And it's taken from the phrase in verse 7, made himself nothing or emptied himself. So the the entire passage gets this nickname, the kenosis. And you know it's an important passage if it gets a nickname, like the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, or the Upper Room Discourse, and John chapters 14 through 16, okay? So this is the kenosis. But let me point out a couple of things about this passage that is very theologically dense. Even with its theological depth and complexity, Paul is not just articulating a doctrine. He is not just explaining the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Paul's concern is really behavior. It's behavior. His concern is how we treat each other. Paul is after oneness, not just theological understanding. And the key to that oneness is humility. It is humility. Now, we've looked at verses one through four a few weeks ago in in more detail. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We saw when we looked at these in detail that these are a summons to oneness, to unity. Basic to living a life worthy of the gospel is for those in Christ's body to come together 
and a oneness of mind, attitude, direction, and purpose. The Philippian church is not in crisis, but for all their love for Paul and all their passion for the gospel, strife and division are lurking, ready to undermine the church and the gospel itself. Which is why Paul is so keen in Philippians to confront self-interest and call for a oneness of spirit and purpose. And so Paul gives us some ways to pursue this oneness, including being of the same mind, having the same love, doing nothing from rivalry, counting others as more significant than ourselves, and so on. Now in verses 5 through 11, Paul shows us the key to living out this humility. How can we attain such humility? Not looking to our own interests doing things never out of ambition, selfish ambition or rivalry and conceit. It is having the mind of Christ. Having the mind of Christ. What is this mind? What's he talking about? What is this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus? Well, the word mind is a very important word in Philippians. Here is how it's translated in Philippians where he uses it nine other times. He uses it 10 times in the book. We've already seen in chapter 1, verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you. That word feel is the same word, mind. Chapter 2, verse 2, which I just read, of the same mind, of one mind. There we go again. Same word. Chapter 3, verse 15, Paul will say, let the mature think this way. If any of you think differently, he will make it clear to you. That word think in both instances is the same word, mind. So feel, mind, think. Chapter 3, verse 19, in describing false teachers, he will describe them as those with minds set on earthly things. Chapter 4, verse 2, be of the same mind. Chapter 4, verse 10, he uses the word twice, and both times it's translated concern. You were concerned for me. I saw that concern. So feel, think, mind, concern, mind or mindfulness. This mind, then, is it's an attitude or a mindset, though those seem like tame words for it. To have this mind means to think in this way, take this perspective that determines this behavior. Remember years ago, I was on a study trip to the nation of Israel, and we had, of course, certain days that were free, and we could walk around Jerusalem and so on, travel, do whatever we wanted. And I remember in a number of times seeing women dressed very nicely, heels, dresses, they would have children sometimes with them, and they would have an M16 strapped across their back. That wasn't uncommon. And so I, I asked somebody who lived there, and I said, I noticed these ladies who were dressed very nicely, and sometimes they have kids with them, and they have guns. I said, who, who are they? I know everybody in Israel 
is nationals are required to serve in the military at a certain age for a certain amount of time, so on. But these ladies aren't in military uniform. They said, oh, those are teachers. Oh. (laughs) They take classroom safety very seriously. They're carrying machine guns. The threat was always very real. That was a mindset. That was having a certain mind. On one of those evenings and walking around Jerusalem with a couple of friends, I remember coming up on a huge crowd, and you could tell there was a big space in the middle. And so we kind of work our way through and go, what's going on? And I'm expecting a juggling act or some kind of a musician or a pantomime, something. And we kind of get our way up to the front and we look over and there's a bench with a bag on it. I'm thinking, these people are hard up for entertainment. They got a bag with a bench. Now, in America these days, this was 1998. These days, we know what that means. We understand why there was a huge circle of space around that bag on a bench. They were waiting for the bomb squad. That wasn't uncommon for them. That is a mindset. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about adopting an entirely different worldview, not philosophically, but in terms of how you see people and how you see life, how you see God's people, how you see your responsibilities among God's people. This mind then is yours in Christ Jesus. That is, it is only in Christ Jesus that this mindset can be gained. And by virtue of your position in Christ, this perspective, this mind is yours already. It's yours already. We simply need to have it. We need to practice it or appropriate it. We need to harness it, if you will, or set our sails by it. How do we do that? How do we live with the mind of Christ? Well, we see the answer in Christ's display of humility. Having this mind means, first of all, utter expendability and ultimate exaltation. Utter expendability and ultimate exaltation. In verses six through eight, we see Christ's utter expendability. Verses six through eight portray the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in a series of steps. Beginning in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The next step, moving into verse 7, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then culminating in verse 8, with a reverberating crescendo in the second part of verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, crescendo, even death on a cross. Though he was in the form of God, verse 6. We do not see Christ become the form of God. He simply was. He was already the form of God. Form means something, something like mode of existence. It speaks both of this one's 
personhood, his essence, and his function. He was in essence and in function the form of God. And what's that? What's the form of God? Glory. Glory. The glorious majesty of the highest position. The very power exerted in the creation of all things that exist. The sovereignty exercised in rule over the universe. Though he was in the form of God, having this glory, this highest position, this power, this rule, this sovereignty, he did not count equality with God. Watch. So the form of God equals equality with God. He did not account this equality with God or the form of God something to be grasped. Grasp is a word that means exploited or used for self-advantage. Equality with God was not something to be achieved or obtained. That's not what it's saying. It's that he didn't see equality with God as something that he wanted to obtain or achieve. He didn't need to achieve or obtain it. It was something he already had. It was a position he already enjoyed. But this glorious sovereign did not reckon his divine being and his divine status as one to exploit for his own advantage. In other words... He counted his equality with God as expendable. It was expendable because it was in his character to do so. But, verse 7, instead of grasping his equality with God, instead of grasping this divine right and this divine privilege, he made himself nothing or emptied himself. This divine one, in the form of God, put his expendability into action and made himself nothing. Now, this is historically the most debated term in these verses. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Emptied himself of deity? No, Emptied himself of divine attributes? No. It's not really emptied himself of something or anything in particular. It's an expression for he gave up his rights. He gave up his status. He abandoned his entitlements and he made himself a nobody. This is exactly what the next two lines affirm. Taking the form of a servant or a slave. Well, that is the exact opposite of glory. That is the exact opposite of power and authority. Slaves have no rights. They don't have freedom. And we know that Jesus was not literally a slave. Jesus was a tradesman, a carpenter, more specifically. Now, this slavery was subjection to pain, 
sorrow, loss, the human experience. That is the slavery. That is the servitude to which this one takes on, takes the form of. It's the opposite of the form of God. This one took on human frailty and suffering by making himself nothing, by emptying himself. Instead of grasping his divine right to self-preservation, and it would have been right for him to do so. It would not have been error or wrong for this one to maintain his divine rights and dignity and position and status. But he counted it as expendable and he made himself nothing. Verse seven then tells us what the form of a servant looked like. Being born in the likeness of men. Being born in the likeness of men, that is, he became truly human and he became completely human, including a physical body, a real physical body. The one who was in the form of God made himself nothing, he emptied himself. And took on the form of a servant. What does that mean? Not a slave among men, but servitude as a human being. He was truly human. He was completely human. This is the incarnation. Now, note, Paul does not say that the son traded his deity for humanity. He says he took on humanity. This was in addition. He took on humanity, including his human body, including a human identity, and in doing so, he laid aside his rights. In other words, this is not really a swap. He doesn't swap deity for humanity. They come together into one person. That's the miracle. That's the incarnation. There is a very technical theological word for those of you who might care. It is called the hypostatic union. If you ever come across that term, that is what it's referring to. It is referring to getting at the understanding of how one who is deity, truly God, becomes truly human and completely human at the same time. And yet, Christ does exactly that. He does exactly that. It is not a swap. At the same time, it is true that the one hid the other, though, isn't it? The humanity hid the deity, or the glory. Now we see his deity authenticated and displayed in his authority and power over nature, over sickness, over the demonic realm, over death. 
We see Jesus exercise authority absolutely, and all the gospel writers make it clear. And that's part of their purpose. But the glory is concealed. The event that shows this most readily is the transfiguration event, where Jesus goes up on the mountain with his disciples. He goes up a little further with James, John, and Peter. And who appears? Moses and Elijah. And they are in a glorified state. And Jesus peels back his humanity and his glory is revealed. It's a great picture of what was really going on in the incarnation and in taking on humanity. His glory was hidden to be revealed at points in time like the transfiguration. So his humanity hid his glory, but it was not a trade, not a swap. So the son relinquishes his rights and his status as God to take on the limits and frailties and pain of being human. But the son's humility did not end with taking on humanity, did it? Verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient to the point of death. Here's the climax. This emptying had a goal. This making himself nothing had a purpose. And that purpose was death, to die. Jesus' obedience is not a truth we talk about a lot. But the New Testament, especially the Gospels, make it clear that the Son, being found in human form, subjected himself to obeying the Father. Let me just point to three events in Jesus' life that demonstrate this reality, because this is crucial, crucial to what Paul is saying here. He became obedient to the point of death. His obedience was so thorough that he even subjected himself to death. The first takes place in the temple. Luke chapter 2. Many of you will remember the story. Jesus, and his, Jesus is 12 years old. He and his family go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They're all leaving. They take off. They're a day down the road when Mary and Joseph realize that Jesus isn't with them. He's He's gone. So they hightail it back to Jerusalem and they spend three days looking for Jesus and they eventually find him in the temple. He's in the temple and he's conversing with the rabbis, the teachers of the law. Answering questions, probably asking a few that we don't know for sure, but he's in there and he's listening. And Luke chapter 248 says, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Wow, how could you do this to me? How could you do this to me and your father? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, listen. Jesus is not saying, why were you looking for me, as, as if to say, I don't understand why you're upset. 
I didn't know you loved me that much. Why were you so distressed looking for me? Jesus is saying, why did you spend three days looking? Didn't you know I would be here? If my child is missing in Target, the first place I go is the toy aisle, right? Jesus is missing. He should be in the temple. But they haven't put that together yet. And they don't understand it. But Jesus, when he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus is saying, Father God has certain priorities for me, and they are not always going to match up with your priorities. It's just a hint of what's coming. The second example takes place in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has been baptized God the Father has spoken, this is my son. The Spirit has descended like a dove, authenticating him as the Christ, the anointed one. And now Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted as a test, a test of his loyalty to the Father. And there are three temptations. Every one of them is a temptation, an effort to get Jesus to act independently of the Father. Every single one. Every temptation is one to deceive Jesus into throwing off his humiliation to divide his own will from God the Father's and act independently on his own authority. Every one. And in every case, Jesus answers with scripture and submits. He obeys the Father. The third example takes place in the garden. The garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14, Jesus, after the last supper, has taken his disciples to pray with him into the garden, which was a custom for them. He is overwhelmed with grief and sorrow because he knows what is about to take place. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 35, Mark says, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's obedience. Listen to Jesus' own explanation. John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 8, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 tell us the same thing. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Obedience was not easy, it meant suffering. 
And just how far would the obedience go? Philippians chapter 2. His humility was so great. His expendability so great. His sacrifice so ready that this one who was in the form of God becomes obedient to the point of death. It meant death. And the crescendo of verse 8 tells us even death on a cross. Suffering, yes. Obedience, yes. Death, yes. And even death by torture and shame. So thorough, so complete was the son's obedience and humiliation that he gave up his glorious position, not just for humanity, not just for obedience, not just for obedience to death, but for humanity that obeys to the point of death, death on a cross. Would you make that trade? Would you trade your status and your comfort and your agendas and your plans and all of the advantages you have in life for scorn and pain, misery? Would you make that trade? It's what the son did. He traded his status to take on our humiliation, our limits, our pain, our sorrow, and our shame. And let me tell you, it was a, an infinitely bigger sacrifice than God calls you and me to make. We are being called to set aside self-interest, to not grasp to not exploit or use to our own advantage those things, but to lower ourselves for others' sakes. Are you utterly expendable? Let me take it a step further. Are you obedient to death, unto death, to the point of death? Christ's path was death on a cross. And God has called you and me to a path of death, death to self. That's a call to every Christian. That's not some higher life. That's not some greater expression of Christianity. That's not someone who's really serious about being a disciple. That's what discipleship is. That's what Christianity is. If anyone would be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. What's Jesus saying? He got to follow the path of death every day. You have to die every day. If you can't, you can't be my disciple. If you won't, you can't be my disciple. Having the mind of Christ is really the essence of living the crucified life. That's what it is. It is living the life with the perspective. I have died. My life is over. My self-interest, it's, it's done. So we see utter expendability. It's the mind of Christ. We also see ultimate exaltation. Ultimate exaltation. 
Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him because of his utterly expendable act of humility, his self-emptying, his perfect obedience, God has highly exalted him. A complete reversal from the lowest place of humiliation to the highest place of honor and authority. In fact, the word exalted, which you see here as two words, highly exalted, is really the word super exalted, which means that Christ's place of exaltation has no rival. It has no comparison. He is in a class of his own. The uniqueness of Christ's exaltation includes the bestowing of a name, the name that is above every name. God's giving of this name proves his work of exalting Christ, his approval. And what is this name? Well, if you continue in verse 10, it looks like Jesus, doesn't it? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. But the point of these verses, I think, is that Jesus has been given a name. Jesus has been given a name other than the name Jesus. A name that is above every name to show that God has indeed exalted this Jesus above all. And that name is Lord. Lord. Paul even takes his words from Isaiah 45, verses 23 and 24. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out into righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. The Lord. So this word Lord is the equivalent of the Old Testament word Lord Yahweh. I am. I am who I am. The name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush when Moses, when God said, Moses, you go talk to the people. And Moses said, who do I say sent me? I'm nobody. Well, you can't compare me to anything. There's nothing even close to me. Unlike all of the gods of Egypt, I am who I am. And there is nothing by which to define me or compare me. I am who I am. Yahweh. And when Paul looks back at Isaiah and sees the name Yahweh used, and then he quotes it, in reference to this Jesus who is now exalted, what is he saying? He's saying that he occupies the highest place that only Yahweh can op- occupy. He is Lord. So the name Lord is not just a name of respect or nob- nobility, this is a title of sovereignty, supremacy deity, and glory. And this exaltation is not just a lifting up. And we think of that when we hear the word exalt, right? 
I exalt thee, I exalt thee. I lift you up. I'm putting you up for worship and adoration. But this lifting up, this exalting of Christ, who has humbled himself and humiliated himself, is a vindication. Jesus, the emptied, humbled one, is now proven and established and revealed as the exalted, glorious one. He is now vindicated. As one writer put it, the renunciation of rights and dignity, the humble self-surrender which led Jesus to the cross These God had declared to be the only greatness recognized in heaven. Well said, amen. He has been vindicated. So that the final outcome, the final outcome of all of this is the worship of Christ and the Father to the glory of God the Father. And you cannot miss that every knee bows and every tongue confesses in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. The whole broken universe and every realm within it will bow and confess and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and will submit to his judgment. So, every person who has believed in Christ has loved him, has followed him, has longed to see him, who already rejoices at his exaltation, will with joy bow and confess. And, Every person who rejects Christ, who sneers at his name, who denies him, who marginalizes him, who plays at church but never really follows, who follows other gods instead of him, including the God of self, will with shame and terror bow and confess. And every human being will be in one of those two groups. What about you? For those of us who know Christ, who love him, who call ourselves Christians, in Jesus' vindication is our vindication and our deliverance. Here's what I mean. When Paul says, have the mind of Christ, which is already yours, and then he displays Jesus' self-emptying, his humility, his making himself nothing, his obedience to death, even death on a cross. Paul is not just saying, emulate that, imitate it. Paul is saying, receive the empowerment to do that from your union with him. You have the mind of Christ. Don't just see the mind of Christ and then try to 
imitated, check off the right boxes, am I being humble? You have the mind of Christ. So when he now moves to Jesus' vindication, his ultimate exaltation, he is saying that if you follow Jesus in his humiliation, then you follow him in his exaltation. If you follow Christ in death, you follow him in vindication. And in his exaltation then is our deliverance. The word exaltation or exalt is actually used in that way also. First Peter chapter five. Peter encourages us. He's telling us you're suffering right now. Uh, And he says, keep yourself under God's hand so that at due time he may exalt you. How does it mean that God the Father is going to pull you up out of your hardships and your trials and worship you or put you up to be? What he means by exalted is the opposite of being humbled and humiliated by hardship and difficulty. God will deliver you. And Jesus' exaltation is our exaltation, our deliverance our final deliverance. The promise, watch, the promise of his glory empowers an expendable life. Because there's a gap, isn't there? This is one of those passages that we look at and we go, okay, there is this already, but there is still a not yet. Jesus is already exalted, He's already at God's right hand. He has already been given the name that is above every name, Lord. But has every knee bowed? Has every tongue confessed? No, we're still waiting for that day. We're still waiting for that. But knowing that that is where we are headed, knowing that that is the end, is the mind of Christ. (laughs) Do you see? And if we're going to live with the mind of Christ, we're not exalted yet. We're not to that day yet. And until we get there, we are to live how? With the mind of Christ. Utter expendability. If Christ has emptied himself, taking on human form, become obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, and is now vindicated as Lord of all, then we can empty ourselves and count our own rights and our own status. That's nothing. Because it really doesn't matter, does it? We're not the focus. This life is not about self-image the more you can forget about yourself and be enraptured with the glory of Christ who is named Lord of all, the better your self-image will be because the less you'll think about you and the more you will think about him. That's where we're headed. And this is the mind of Christ. It is what we are called to, not just as God's people, but as Crossway Fellowship as God's people.